Isn't it good that the battle belongs to the Lord? That it is his. And I know this, in the midst of the battle sometimes, the battle is loud. The enemy can be loud. And I'm thankful as the choir reminded us early, earlier that softly and tenderly our God calls. Even in the midst of the noise, even in the midst of the chaos, he calls. And may we listen and hear him even today. So if you have your Bible this morning, if you can open with me to John, kind of the end of verse or chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8. We're dealing with one verse at the end of chapter 7 all the way to the verse 11 of chapter 8. And welcome to week 22 of our series that has us walking through the gospel of John. And I want to begin this morning a little different in that I want to begin with a very definitive statement. And then I'm going to muddy the waters a little bit or maybe for some of you, maybe a, a whole lot. And then I hope that after muddying the waters, I can bring some, some clarity. So here's the definitive statement. We believe, and I say we, the First Baptist Church of Ocean Way, I as your pastor, we believe that the Bible is the breathed out, written word of God, fully inspired, without error, in the original manuscripts written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it has primary authority over all matters of faith and conduct in all of our lives. It is living. It is powerful. It is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it cuts straight to the heart of your life and my life. No book is more important than the Bible. So God's perfect, inspired, inerrant word is loved, is treasured, and it is protected by his people. So from the very first prophets who put the word of the Lord into writing until now, God's people have taken the utmost care to keep, to copy, and to preserve the word of God. So long before the printing presses could um, ensure consistent copies, Israel and then the church would basically they carefully copied scripture hear this not word by word but letter by letter letter by letter that was the value of importance so given its uniquely eternal transcendent nature god's people showed meticulous care in transcribing the word of god and, and preserving the word of god for generations to come so now i say all that and i declare all that and yet so here's where the muddy water begins the scripture that we come to this morning is not included in the earliest manuscripts of scripture. So meaning that most newer translations, I use the ESV, if you use a newer translation, um, you're going to have a little footnote um, in your Bible that tells you that this passage was not found in the earliest copies of the Gospel of John. So what does that mean? Well, it means exactly what it says. That until the 5th century, this story wasn't found in any Greek manuscripts. So that means that for around 400 years, this story wasn't found in the Gospel of John. Not only that, but when you study the teachings and the commentaries of the early church fathers, none of them mentioned this passage in their commentaries for that first 400 years. So it's, it's a, a picture here where I, I know I'm mudding the waters and, and I, don't, I don't have time to get into a lot of different things. We know that the King James Version was written in 1600 and used the, the copies that they had for them. We know since the King James Version, copies, newer copies of Scripture came back that dated back to almost 100 years, uh, almost to 100 years of when the, the authors wrote the scripture. So to take a, a step back this morning, 
we need to, we need to kind of know and kind of think about, think things through, how could something get in the Bible um, without coming from the author in the first place? And so in the days before the printing presses, I just said literature um, was reproduced by hand by scribes who would meticulously copy um, the word of God. So copied it over and over and over again. And in the process of copying the scriptures, scribes were sometimes inclined to make changes in the text, meaning most often they were very light edits that were and, and their minds were to make the reading easier. Sometimes it was to clean up bad grammar, so bad grammar that was um, taking place. Other times it was just to clarify what they thought was unclear. Yet there were also times when the scribes would add text. Now, true text, um, most of the time they were true texts that were carried on by oral tradition. And they were oral tradition, they, and they said, listen, that has kind of been included in the, in the ministry of Jesus, so they, they would add it. Others would be... Um, Kind of what I call true biblical declarations. For instance, in the newer versions of the Bible that we, we have, the, the Lord's Prayer. That, that last word, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, is not in the oldest manuscripts. But it is in the Old Testament. So the picture is, by that time, when um, brothers and sisters got together and declared the Lord's Prayer... They added that last statement as a biblical true statement that was an exclamation point, not taking away anything from the word of God. So we should see this or in this that the vast majority of the time, the scribes were trying to help us understand um, God's word more fully. Now, I know there's, there's mud here, so let me just say this. If the possibility of having edits in scripture makes you a little concerned, you know, we should take encouragement with just how accurate the scribes were over the years. So let me just say this. There are, we have around 5,800 manuscripts of the New Testament, some from within a century of the original composition. Some would even say within 50 years of the original composition, which reveal, hear this, a 99.5% accuracy among them all. That is unheard of. 5,800 manuscripts, and you have a 99.5% accuracy of them all and let me just say this of the 0.5 percent none of those things affect doctrine not one of those things affect the doctrine of what we believe and so although this morning i am teaching uh, from the belief that this text was not in the original text you should not think for a moment well is everything now up for grabs or how can i trust any text if what you're saying is true no on the contrary we should thank god that in his sovereignty he has ordered things in such a way that very few uncertainties remain concerning the word of god and any uncertainty that remains concerning the word of god affects zero doctrine of the word of god meaning that there are some numbers that come into play in the word of god that that and one version says this, another version says this, but it affects nothing of the doctrine of God's word. God is true in every way. And so what God says is true. God is not a man that he can lie ever. So we thank God for his truthfulness. So nearly all New Testament scholars today would agree that although this passage that we come to today was not original to the gospel of john most scholars believe that it was actually written by luke um, because john never puts the pharisees and scribes together as we're about to read but luke does so most believe that luke is writing this but here's what we do know 
that this text that we come to this morning carries the same character, the same tone, the same words, and the actions of Jesus clearly conveying the gospel to us in such a way that we should not doubt that this story was true and that Jesus did what we're about to read that he did. Meaning that, listen, if we can't feel that this was part of, of John's gospel, we can know that this story is true to the character of who Jesus is. One theologian declared of this passage, there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. We should apply it to our advantage. And I will let you, if you want to take off and you want to study and you want to go through this and you want to look at the textual um, criticism of all of these things, have at it. You can have at it. If you want to send me emails about it, go for it. Um, I am not a Bible scholar. You know that. Um, I'm not going to pretend to be a Bible scholar because you know better than that. But I am leaning heavy upon conservative Bible scholars and what they have passed down and the, the truth that has been, um, you, they, they are unified in and looking at this text this morning. So I want to dive in today and I hope and pray to find some clarity in this picture, this, this true picture that shows us the true nature of Christ and the way he responded in the midst of, of sin. I'm going to let you remain seated because we've stood up a lot, and I don't want some of you um, recovering Catholics to begin to wonder um, if we are Catholic with all of this sitting down and standing up that we have done this morning. So I'm going to let you stay seated, although um, I'm going to know that some of you are going to stand up in your hearts, and that is an awesome thing. But we're going to begin in chapter 7, uh, verse 53, and then read all the way through chapter 8, verse 11. And again, some of yours um, have... Notes around this, and mine says the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses. But here we go. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said, or this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we come to this, your word. And Lord, I pray that nothing that I have said so far will shake our confidence at all in your word. Lord, your word has been preserved in such an amazing way. And Lord, you are true in all of your ways. And we just pray that your living, powerful word today would speak into our hearts and lives in a way that shows us in the midst of hate, Lord, there is love. In the midst of hate 2,000 years ago, there was love. And love didn't ignore sin. Love didn't turn his eye to sin. Love, true love, died for our sin. 
And we just pray today that we would see that those who come to Christ for us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So Jesus tells us today, I don't condemn you. I died for you. Go and sin no more. Lord, just speak, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So consider this scenario with me this morning. Just imagine you are standing in a bank. And you're in line, you're waiting for the next teller to become available, and you see a man walk into the bank. He's got a visible firearm, and he begins to give instructions. You see a second man, he walks right past all who are standing in line with you, and he walks right into the back, and he walks right to the the vault, and he opens it up. A third man has a handful of empty bags, and he begins to fill each bag up, And when all the bags are full, he then leaves out the back door of the bank. So what's going on in your mind? In your mind right now, you're thinking, I picked a really bad time to go to the bank, is what you are thinking. Now picture this scenario with a few more details. The man who's filling his bags is a custodian, and the bags that he's carrying are garbage bags. The reason he's exiting out the back door is because that's where the dumpster is. The man who marches by you to the safe is the bank manager. The first thing he does every morning is to check the safe. The man with the visible firearm is the bank security guard. He's giving details and barking out orders because that's what he does. Listen, I say all that to say this. Details make a difference. Details make a difference. So imagine if you attempted to open the safe. Now, if you attempted to open the safe... Things would not work well for you. If you attempted to walk in with a firearm and barking orders, things would not end well for you in any way whatsoever. Why? Because you don't have the authority. Well, in John 8, what John 8 does is points us to the authority of Jesus. Things that Jesus can do that no one else can do. Only he can do this. So John 8 is the story of a woman caught in the very act of adultery who was brought to Jesus by religious leaders. But it's also the story of Jesus not only doing something, more on that in just a second, it's also a story of Jesus writing something. In fact, it's the only occasion in the Bible that Jesus writes something down. He wrote something on the dust of the stones of the temple courts that have long been blown away, but those things were written there nonetheless. Yet we're going to focus this morning on what Jesus said and what Jesus did with this woman. Before we do, I want you to hear something that was written by Philip Schaff. He's one of the greatest historians of the church, and he says this concerning Jesus. And you'll see it on the screen. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of the school, he spoke such words of life as never were spoken before or since. And he goes on, without writing a single line, he has set more pens in motion and furnished more themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. Again, the theme of the Gospel of John is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that through him and by him we can have life in his name. And that theme echoes clearly and loudly through these verses. 
that Jesus can do only hear what God can do. So there are three pictures worth our attention this morning from these verses. And I pray that now moving forward, we have clarity here. The first picture is this. We must see, number one, the disgrace of sin. The disgrace of sin. Follow with me here in verses three and four. Again, it says the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So the scribes, the Pharisees together have a woman who is caught in the act. Only moments before this, she was in the bed with a man who was not her husband. Now, is this what she did for a living? We we don't know. But what we do know is that instantly this woman was in the grasp of angry men who are dragging her and now her forbidden secret through the streets. Her life is undone in a moment by her own doing and her life is about to be crushed. That's what we know. Verse 4 says this, she was caught in adultery, caught in the act of adultery. Does that statement sound suspicious to you? It should. You know, wouldn't you say that it's unusual to stumble across adultery taking place? And, and this is not the kind of offense that a person can commit by themselves. So the question becomes, where was the man? Where was the man? And we begin to ask questions. Well, was no attempt made to arrest him? Or was, you know, we know he was just as guilty under the law as she was. Or did they let him go because he was in on it? Did he set her up just so they could use her in this moment? You know, we don't know all the answers to these questions, but here's what we do know. According to the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. It was considered one of the three biggies in the life of the Jews. Idolatry, murder, adultery. And in fact, adultery was so heinous in the eyes of God because it destroys the fabric of the family that it was one of the sins in the Old Testament that could be punished by capital punishment. So there's no exact wording on how the death should be carried out, although the most notable method was stoning. Yet, hear this, in the Mishnah, the Jewish commentary, the oral traditions, they practiced something called death by strangulation. Now hear this, when an adulterer was caught, they would be placed in three feet of manure. Then they would put a soft cloth around their neck, followed by a harsh cloth. The reason they wanted a soft cloth first was because this was supposed to be divine punishment. Therefore, they didn't want to leave any human mark or human evidence. So soft cloth, hard cloth, and then a rope that they would loop around the person's neck. Two people on each end was, would pull as hard as they possibly could until the person had no more air to breathe. The Mishnah tells us that's how the sin of adultery was punished. So picture the scene. The sun is rising. Jesus comes to the temple People, many, many people gather around him. Jesus sits down and he begins to teach them. And all of a sudden, from the distance, you hear an angry commotion as angry men dragged this woman and shoved her into the crowd, declaring her to be an adulteress. Can you imagine the humiliation? Can you imagine how degrading this would be for her in that moment? Not only that, here she is now standing before a holy God. How would a holy God respond to such a sinner? 
listen, the bottom line, the, the root of all sinning is a heart that prefers anything and everything to God. That's the root of sin. When our heart prefers anything and everything to God, hear this, there is disgrace in that. When we don't look to God as our sustainer, as our provider, as the one who is holy over our lives, our Lord, we bring disgrace to him and to our own lives. This is the disgrace of sin. But the second picture I want you to see is this, the deeds of self-righteousness. The deeds of self-righteousness, which is what we see in the scribes and Pharisees. Look at verses 5 and 6. You'll see on the screen. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Let me just pause for a second to say this. Listen, I don't know if you figured this out by now, but this had nothing to do with this woman. This had everything to do with them trapping Jesus so they could kill him. And then listen to his response. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. But just think with me real quick about self-righteousness. Malcolm Muggeridge has a helpful word at this point. He says this, there is in each of us, so none of us are left out here. There is in each of us a hardcore of pride or self-centeredness, which corrupts our best achievements and our best experiences. It comes out in all sorts of ways. It comes out in the jealousy in which spoils our friendships, in the vanity we feel when we have done something pretty good, in the easy conversion of love into lust, in the meanness which makes us belittle the efforts of other people, in our fondness for flattery, and in our self-assertive profession of fine ideals which we never practice in the first place. This is a picture, brothers and sisters, of pride and self-righteousness in our lives. We read it this week, and I'll say it again. It is so easy for us to judge a thousand sins of other people than it is for us to deal with one sin in our own lives. We are so good at, at judging other people. Praise God for the Holy Spirit in my life because when judgment kicks in, I thank God that the Holy Spirit says, hang on a second, Micah. Have you looked in the mirror today? And when I look in the mirror, I realize that I am undone and I need the grace that they need. But think about this. These religious men could not help this woman. They could only condemn her. They could not give her a new heart. They could not give her a new life. They could not set her free from the wickedness that she was in. They could condemn her, but they could not save her. They could destroy her, but they could not restore her. These men did not care about this woman at all. She's not a person to them. She's just bait for a trap. And listen, I don't know a whole lot, but I know, know this. Normally, most of the time, it doesn't work out well for the bait. It doesn't work out well for the bait. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they're, they're setting a trap here for Jesus. And here's what they know. That if Jesus shows compassion for this woman and basically forgives this woman, he'll be ignoring the law of Moses. And they believe that if he ignores the law of Moses, then people will stop looking at him as a teacher or as someone who could be the Messiah. On the other hand, Jesus constantly showed compassion, he showed kindness, he showed mercy, he showed forgiveness, he showed grace. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus welcomes sinners, he welcomes tax collectors, adulterers, he welcomes lepers, 
the blind, the lame, the outcast, he welcomes them all into his presence. Everyone is well aware of the mercy and gentleness of Jesus. This is one of the reasons so many were coming to him. So the scribes and Pharisees think in their minds, if Jesus now agrees with the law and says that she should be stoned or killed, then people will stop viewing him as the one who accepts or receives sinners. So in their minds, they have him. What will Jesus do? Yet what he does first is he bends down and he begins to write on the ground. And the age-old question is this. You're thinking it right now. What was he writing? What was he writing? And you know, was he writing the commandments? Was he writing all the sins of everybody who was there? Now, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? If he just starts writing people's sins, Frank, this. You know, and, and Frank's always easy to pick on. But you notice I left off a sin because I didn't want gossip to happen today. So, you know, <laughs> or, or that. But you know, what was he writing? And, of course, we don't know. We have no idea because John doesn't tell us. But maybe, just maybe, the most important part here is not what he writes, but the fact that he was writing with his finger. Meaning, can you think of an occasion in the Old Testament when God wrote with his finger? In Exodus 31, it says that God gave Moses the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, that God had written with his own finger. So if that was Jesus' intent, and I believe that it was, to focus their intent, or their, their attention, excuse me, on the fact that he is writing, then Jesus was once again, no surprise here, claiming to be God. He was once again proclaiming to be the one who gave the law to his people. So that is my thinking, and that's the, the, the reasons are given throughout the rest of this scripture that, that shows you kind of that that is probably the truth here. So Jesus looks at them and says, who is without sin? Cast the first stone. And then after saying these words, verse 8 says this. Don't miss it. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So Jesus is doing it again. What is the significance of Jesus writing again? So if his adversaries didn't think much of Jesus um, writing the first time, him writing again begins to get their attention and begins to think, what is he claiming in this moment? I don't think that Jesus is just doing this by, for repetition, repetition by any means. He's reminding his audience of what happened with the Ten Commandments. So here's what we know. We know that God wrote the first commandments with his finger. We also know that when Moses came down from the mountain, he seized the people of Israel. And the Bible says that they were sitting down to eat and drink and they were rising up to play. So they were worshiping a golden calf. They were engaging in sexual immorality. And Moses takes the commandments and he throws them down, breaking them as a symbol that the people of Israel had broken the commandments of God. Yet when we get to Exodus 34, we read that God showed mercy on his people by not only forgiving them, but by writing the law with his finger a second time. So as Jesus is bending down a second time, he's once again saying, if you haven't figured it out by now, I'm him. I am he. I am God. And I wrote the law. I know the law. And I can apply the law perfectly to every single heart in life. This is the picture. Yet don't miss the words of Jesus in verse 7. Jesus said this, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, what does that mean? Because that has been so misinterpreted in our day. Did Jesus mean that you can't accuse anyone or judge anyone or go to anyone unless you are sinless? 
No, that's not what he means because that is not what the law requires. Jesus meant in order for them to, to be able to judge her for adultery, they needed to be, first of all, free from adultery in their own lives, which probably wasn't true. Or secondly, they needed to be free from the involvement in prearranging all of this that led to them catching this woman, which either of those cases, they were guilty whether they were committing adultery themselves or whether they were guilty of setting this woman up, they were guilty. They had interrupted Jesus' teaching in order to ask Jesus to pass judgment, and now he would. Yet instead of passing sentence upon this woman, he passes sentence upon her accusers. And don't miss this. Please hear this. God will always condemn self-righteousness. God will always condemn self-righteousness. Self-righteousness that allows us to believe that we're better than other people and other people's sins are way worse than ours. God will condemn that every time. Listen, let's stop judging people for sinning different than we do. Let me say it again. Let's stop judging people for sinning different than we do. Start with you. Start with the plank in your eyes. I start with a plank in my eye. And then as that plank is addressed, I can see clearly with the love of God to respond to the needs of other people. So the deeds of self-righteousness leads us, number three, to the deliverance of salvation. The deliverance of salvation. Don't miss this. So this event, this event shows us, first of all, how sinners deal with sinners. Not very well. It shows us how the law deals with sinners. The law condemns sinners. But it also shows us how Jesus deals with sinners. The only one qualified to throw stones at this woman had no stones in his hand. Let me say it again. The only one qualified to throw stones at this woman had no stones in his hands. He had nothing. He refused to throw any. And we are told in verse 10, as you see on the screen, Jesus stood up. And he said to her after they had left, he said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. These are the only words spoken by this accused woman in this passage. Think about no one, Lord. What words? But the question becomes, how can Jesus let her off the hook? Somebody has to die, right? That's what the law tells us. Somebody has to die for her sin. And that's just it. You know what Jesus knew as he stood there? You know what Jesus knew when he said to that woman, I condemn, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. You know what he knew in his heart? He knew full well that he would die on the cross in just a bit for her sin and for ours. He knew that. So therefore, hear this. Jesus, here in this moment, he wasn't ignoring justice. He was satisfying justice. Jesus doesn't ignore justice, he satisfies it. Jesus doesn't look the other way to sin, he dies for your sin and my sin. And because Jesus would take her condemnation, he was able to say to her, there is no condemnation for you. And in case you don't know this, he says it to us as well. For those who come to Jesus, Romans 8.1 says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. You know, a saved audience would have got happy about that. There's going to be an altar call in just a moment. I'm inviting you to have no condemnation in your life. Here's the point. Brothers and sisters, Satan, the enemy, condemns us. 
Oh, how he condemns us. But there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus for those who are his. Think back, think back to Pastor Jordan's message in John 3, 17. Jesus says, for God so loved the world. And then Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And people go, oh, isn't that just great? Jesus wasn't condemning. Have you read the Gospels? No, what Jesus was saying here is this. I'm not coming to condemn you because you're condemned already. I don't have to condemn you. You've done that yourself. That's what Jesus is saying. I don't have to condemn you. The second you sin, you did that you. You did that for you. But I'm coming to save you. And I'm coming to take away the condemnation from you by taking it upon myself. Therefore, if you trust me, there will be no condemnation for you. Oh, may we see that and not miss that today. And just think about the order of Christ's words here. Don't miss the order. Jesus didn't say, go and sin no more and then I won't condemn you. You know, religion says that. Religion says, clean your life up and then you will be accepted. There is no good news there. There's no, if, the, if the message of the gospel is you clean yourself up, you live right, and then you'll be saved, that is good news for none of us. None of us. We can't do it. We'll never do it. But Jesus says this, I'll forgive you, and I'll give you the power to clean up your act. I'll, I'll forgive you, and I'll clean you. Religion says change or be condemned. Religion says I will judge you in every way whatsoever, but I won't help you. But grace says, I've forgiven you, and I'll change you. Listen, we we don't change in order to be accepted by God. We change because we have been accepted by God. Because God has accepted us in Christ Jesus. Nothing motivates a new life like grace received into our hearts. Listen, grace does what rules can never do. Grace changes us. It changes us. This woman wasn't worthy of compassion. But Jesus poured out grace upon grace upon grace on a woman who was not worthy. And Jesus, in case you're wondering, he still pours out grace upon grace to unworthy people. Praise be to God. I want to end with with two things. First of all, a quote I came across, and this, this, this one won't be on the screen, but you can write this down. It, it, it says this, every saint has a past, and every sinner can have a future. Every saint has a past, and every sinner can have a future. If you are a saint in this room, meaning if you are a child of God, let me just break some bad news to you. You have a past. You have a past, and you would be a better saint if you remembered the past that God Jesus pulled you from. Let me say it again. Every saint in this room, you have a past, and you would be a better saint if you remembered the past that Jesus saved you from. Because here's what I know. The longer we're saved, the, the more we forget what Jesus saved us from, and the better we, beget, we, we become at judging everybody else. And what we do if we're not careful, here's what we do. We shut the doors of salvation to other people. Instead of realizing that Jesus saved us from sin and he can save them from sin. And their sin might be different, it might look different, but he can save them too. And may we never forget that. And then I want to end today with the words of of Warren Wiersbe. For if we're a sinner, listen, if, if we're a saint, we have a past. If we're a sinner, we can have a future. 
And Warren Wiersbe says this, we must not misinterpret excuse me, this event to mean that Jesus was easy on sin or that he contradicted the law. For Jesus to forgive this woman meant that he had to one day die for her sins. And hear that last line. Write that last, that last line down. Forgiveness is free, but it is not cheap. Forgiveness is free. It is not cheap. There is no such thing as cheap grace. Because our forgiveness and grace cost Jesus his life. It is free. It will never be cheap. Brothers and sisters, we have passed. If you're a saint in this room, you have a past. But praise be to God, Jesus took you out of that miry pit. He set your feet upon the rock. Set your feet upon himself. And if you're a sinner in this room, if you've never turned to Christ, today you can have a future. You can have a future. You can be born again this very day. This very day can be a day of life for you. It can be a day of calling upon the name of the Lord and being saved. It can be a day where that condemnation that is store, you're storing up for yourself can be gone. And you can, in this moment, trust Jesus that he has done for you what you can never do for yourself. And this today can be a day of new beginnings. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. All old things are passed away. All things become new. May today be that day. May today be a day that we, in looking at this world, look at it through the eyes of Jesus and see that we're, we're religion and we're sinners preached hate and we're sinners wanted death. Jesus stepped in and gave his life so that we could have life in him. Oh, that we can celebrate that life together. I'm going to ask you to stand. As we call the praise team forward. And enter into this time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray as they come. Father, we thank you for this text. And I pray today that we can, Lord, see the beauty of, Lord, that this text shows us a picture that is absolutely true of Jesus. His nature, his character, the way, Jesus, you treated sinners then and the way you treat sinners now. Yeah, you don't ignore sin, Jesus. You died for sin. But by your grace, Jesus, because of grace, we are able to be accepted and we are able to change. Lord, thank you for the acceptance that we have in you through your son, Jesus. Thank you that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That Satan condemns us. Satan does everything he can to throw it all at us, Jesus. But you don't condemn us. You died for us. Yes, Holy Spirit, you convict us, and it's for our good that we are convicted. But we will never be condemned. Lord, I pray today for any in this room, any watching online, Lord, who have never responded to the gift of salvation from Jesus Christ, that today would be a day that they would see themselves as this sinful woman caught in their sin, maybe not by people, but by the Holy Spirit, Today would be a day of them seeing that there is no condemnation in Jesus. That Jesus, you did for us what we could never do for ourselves in dying for our sin and rising from the grave. Lord, I pray that if anyone in here that doesn't know you, anyone watching online, may today be the day of salvation. May they call on the name of the Lord and be saved. But may us, Lord, as Christians today also see two things. Number one, may we see this as a call, Lord, to flee sin to flee the sin in our own lives today, to run from it, 
whatever it is. To not play games with sin because sin desires to kill us, to destroy us. Help us to run from it, but also, Lord, help us to be mindful of the way that we deal with others. And forgive us for our own self-righteousness and the way we have responded. Lord, set us free to love as you love, not drawing attention to sin. Lord, we want to draw attention to sin. We, we need to be saved from sin. But we also want to draw attention, Lord, to the, the life and the hope that you give. Finish this time, Lord, in a way that only you can. In Jesus' name.